0: Welcome once again to Trinity Grace. We're so glad that you're here this morning, especially if you're a visitor with us. If you've got a Bible, you'll wanna open it up to 1 Peter chapter three. The passage is also printed for you in your worship folder. And as many of you know, we're in the middle of a series on 1 Peter, and we're gonna be looking at this letter that Peter wrote to a group of churches in modern day Turkey through the fall season here at Trinity Grace. And if you've been here the past two weeks, you may feel kind of like I felt as we've looked at Peter's letter. It's been heavy. Touching on topics that don't normally come up in polite conversation with another person. Remember a few weeks ago, we looked at Peter address how Christians are called to be subject to or to live under the government authorities. And last week, we spent some time looking at Peter address gender roles in marriage and how wives and husbands are called to submit to one another so that they might make marriage work as it was created to. And after touching on these topics, politics, and gender roles in marriage, it's been pretty intense. In fact, I've personally felt like it's about time for a vacation. Time to get away for a little bit. And even though... These topics aren't normally what comes up in small talk around the water cooler at work. I've heard a number of you comment on how practical the past few weeks have been. Remember, Peter is writing to a group of churches in the Roman Empire that are trying to uh, learn what it looks like to follow Jesus in the midst of a culture and a society that does not look favorably upon Christianity. And Peter is laser focused on trying to encourage these Christians as they discern how to faithfully live within a society that does not understand them, within a society that oftentimes doesn't respect them, within a society that is increasingly seeking to marginalize them for their beliefs. And it's not unlike what parts of our culture and society are becoming with regard to how it views Christians and Christianity. And so even though these topics have been a bit intense, I don't think that we can say that they've been irrelevant to our understanding of what it means to follow Jesus in this world. And this morning, Peter is bringing his portion on subjection and relationships to a close, this portion of his letter. And as he does, he broadens his attention to focus on everyone. He broadens his attention to focus on everyone, not just citizens, not just slaves or wives or husbands. As Peter wraps up this part of his letter, he turns his attention to everyone and how they're called to relate to one another, to those both inside and those outside the church. To see how Peter closes this section of his letter, you follow along as I read from 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse eight. Peter says, finally, all of you, Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Well, this is God's word, and he gives it to us because he wants us to know him, and he loves us. So let me pray for us this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it's a light in our life. We pray this morning that your truth would be spoken and that you would help us to receive that truth. We pray that that truth would set us free. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I recently ran across a story this past week on the internet, not sure if it's true or not, but it's a story of a farmer who was plowing in the field when he looked up and he saw a plane skywriting the letters over his field skywriting the letters G-P-C in the sky, G-P-C in the sky. Well, he thought this is odd, so he thanks and he thanks. And after a while, he determines that it must be a sign from God that meant go preach Christ. So he goes and he tells the folks at his church and they give him the opportunity to preach. So the farmer stands up and he preaches a long-winded, boring confusing sermon, you know, the type of sermon that you never hear at Trinity Grace. And after he's done, a fellow church member comes up and says, maybe God meant go plant corn. Funny little story, but it touches on a serious problem that we often experience. And the problem is with discerning what God is calling us to do in our lives. And the question of calling is an important one to consider for Christians, and as you think about the idea of what God is calling you to do, you can think about it under two broad umbrellas. First, you can think about calling generally. And second, you can think about calling specifically. And as you think about calling specifically, you're thinking about what God has called you specifically to do in your life, in your various spheres of influence. And as you think about your specific calling, there's different things that you've got to keep in mind that you've got to consider. Things like your personality, things like the spiritual gifts that God has given you. You've got to consider things like opportunity and our doors being opened for you to enter into certain callings in your life. You've got to think of things like what you're passionate about and desires that you have. You've got to think of things like encouragement and counsel from close friends and mentors. All of these things come into play as you begin to consider the specifics of what God is calling you to in your life. But you can also think about calling what God's calling you to do in a more general way. And oftentimes this way isn't as hard to discern. After all, every follower of Jesus is called to a life of ministry. It's not just those in vocational ministry. If you claim to be a believer in Christ this morning, you are called to ministry. But how you flesh out that ministry looks different for different people. Some of you are called to ministry through business. Others of you are called to ministry through parenting or through medicine or through formal preaching. A life of ministry is the general call to all those that follow Jesus. We're all called to love. We're all called to serve. We're all called to forgive. We're all called to share the good news of what Jesus has done. That doesn't need to be debated. And if you want to bottle all of what a follower of Jesus is called to do into one word, I wonder what word comes to your mind this morning. If you had to bottle all of that up into one word, Well, if you went back to the very beginning of God's mission in this world, you'd see that he singles out one man, Abraham, and he calls him to himself and he gives him a massive calling that echoes down throughout the pages of the Bible and throughout history. To see the very headwaters of what God is doing in this world, you can turn back to Genesis chapter 12, where he calls Abram to follow him and gives him a calling. And it's the calling that every Christian is given throughout the world. You see it in Genesis chapter 2, verse 12, printed for you at the beginning of your bulletin. The beginning of God's mission in this world, where God calls Abram and says, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. It's as simple as that. We often want to make it more complicated. We want to nuance things. We often want to be more technical or sophisticated in what God's called us to do. But in Genesis chapter 12, we see God give his people their primary calling in its profound and its simplicity. We're called to be a blessing. Called to be a blessing. And that's really the big idea for us this morning. As Peter wraps up his section on relationships, we're reminded that our calling as followers of Jesus is to be a blessing. Now, it would probably be a good idea to define what the word blessing means, right? Likely doesn't need to be said that the word blessing has lost a lot of its punch in our current Christian culture. And if you think about it, it's become a throwaway word in Christian circles in many ways. We sign emails with it. Uh, We part ways by saying, God bless you. Uh, It's a word that we use without thinking much about it. But if you were to get back to the way that the Bible uses the word, you'd see that it's loaded. Uh, It's a word that calls forth our time and our energy and our focus. It's a word that's meant to be a defining characteristic of who a follower of Jesus is. The word blessing is a word that points to God's favor, God's favor. In other words, we're a blessing to others when they get a taste of God's love and favor and grace through us. Blessing the people in our lives and in this world is bringing universal flourishing and peace to bear on people's lives. We are a blessing when we are manifestations of God to others. Seeking their good in the same way that God would seek their good. That's what blessing is. And Peter sums up his section on relationships in this passage by encouraging these Christians to be a blessing to others. As the church, we've been invited into a life of blessing. We've been those who are blessed by God. And we're called to be a community that moves out to bless others, both inside and outside the church. How can you be distinctive in our culture? How can you be compelling in our society? You bless. And we're going to look at this idea of blessing under two headings this morning. What does it look like to bless inwardly? And what does it look like to bless outwardly? Or in other words, what does it mean to bless our brothers and sisters in Christ within our church community? And what does it mean to bless our friends and our neighbors who don't yet know Christ? A Fancy way to put it is how do you bless covenantally and how do you bless missionally? Okay, first, let's spend a few minutes looking at what it means to bless inwardly, to bless those inside the church. As we mentioned, Peter is wrapping up his section on relationships in this passage, and he's bringing it all together and concluding this portion of his letter. And in verse 8, we see Peter expand his target audience, like I mentioned, to include the entire Christian community. He's addressing all of you, not just citizens or slaves or spouses, but everyone who would claim to follow Jesus in Asia Minor and us. Peter is turning his attention to how Christians should treat one another in verse 8. This is an in-house moment for Peter in a sense. He's having a family conversation with his readers in this verse. He wants to instruct these Christians about how life in God's family is meant to look. And he does it by listing five different characteristics that are meant to mark the Christian community in verse 8. And these are characteristics that bring blessing to a community. And by exhibiting these characteristics, the Christian community is gonna be a compelling and an attractive community in the midst of a culture that does not fully understand them. Notice that Peter touches on characteristics that have to do with our minds and our hearts. And all of it funnels into the primary characteristic of love. Notice the chiastic order in verse eight. He starts with unity of mind, And then he moves down to a tender heart or sympathy that leads to love. It flows out in love. And then it moves back to a tender heart and then back all the way to a humble mind. Peter is touching on the totality of who we are, mind and heart. It all manifests itself in brotherly love towards one another. And this word for love is meant to highlight affection. It's not the word agape that we normally think of when we see love in the New Testament. It's the word philadelphos, which highlights brotherly and sisterly love. It's love that actually likes being around the other person. Now, agape, you've got to do whether you like the other person or not. But this type of love is you love them and you also like them. You want to be around them. Peter knows that how we relate to one another as the church has the potential to be one of the most powerful apologetics to a watching world. Verse 8 is meant to be the normative experience for us in the church. These characteristics are supposed to be business as usual in our community. Nothing about these verses should surprise us. We're called to be agreeable. We're called to be sympathetic, to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice. We're called to count others as more important than ourselves. But as you read these characteristics, if you're honest, you'd admit that they're not words that you'd always tie to your experience within the church. Unfortunately, it's not always normative for people to engage with Christians for an extended period of time and exclaim, wow, Look at all those tender hearts and humble minds. It happens sometimes for sure, but I think that we can all agree that we wish that it was more true of our community, that we could go deeper and deeper with unity and tender hearts and humility towards one another. And if we were really honest, we'd have to say that we've sometimes experienced the complete opposite of verse eight in the church community. The church has oftentimes been a place of disunity, a place of self-righteousness, a place where you encounter critical spirits like you encounter nowhere else. Where you encounter hard hearts. And when our community exhibits those kind of toxic characteristics, it makes people want to give up. I mean, it makes people want to move away from us. But Peter, in this passage, wants to invite us to this kind of community. He wants to see a group of people from different socioeconomic classes, from different races, from different backgrounds, with different personalities and different gifts, coming together with unity of mind and with sympathy and with humility. What if we exhibited these characteristics at Trinity Grace? What if when people thought of the church, they immediately thought of unity and sympathy and humility? That would take some time. I mean, it would be a day-by-day kind of decision to live out these characteristics with one another, but the cumulative effect of day-by-day making one decision after the other would be a powerful picture to a watching world. Instead of criticizing brothers and sisters in Christ, what if we were more encouraging? Instead of looking for things that are done poorly within the church which luckily I will say we have not had a problem with yet, what if we started trying to catch people doing good? Tried to defend people when we hear others talking bad about them. Instead of being a community that saps life from one another with self-righteousness and one-upmanship, what if we sought to give life by offering forgiveness and lots of grace? You cannot shock us with what you've done in this room. That's the kind of community we wanna be. You get the sense when you read the gospels that Jesus was never shocked. This past week, I was on my way home listening to All Things Considered on NPR and they were talking about a painting that had recently garnered lots of attention entitled The Republicans Club. And it's a painting, you can go online and look at it, of various Republican presidents sitting at a table having drinks and laughing. And in the picture, you've got Teddy Roosevelt, you've got Abraham Lincoln, Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, George Bush, and Donald Trump, along with others in the background of this painting. And the show that day was highlighting the fact that President Trump really likes this painting so much so that he has it hung up in the White House. And the host, of All Things Considered, was talking about how Trump likes it so much because of the way he looks in the picture. If you go and look at the picture, he is thinner in this picture than he is in real life. And his traits are more pleasing, and he looks happy to be there. Well, on the radio show, the host mentioned that Trump has a reputation for being a hard person to paint in a flattering way. And the hosts asked the painter why he decided to paint all of these presidents in such a flattering way. All of them had less weight and all of them had big smiles on their faces and they had a really good coloring in this painting. And the painter mentioned, and I loved it because it felt like the host was trying to bait the painter, but he wasn't cynical. And he mentioned that he likes to make people look good when he can And it kind of shocked the host when she heard him say this. And at one point in the interview, he said his goal is to make people look as good as they can while still being recognizable. To make people look as good as they can while still being recognizable. I love that. I mean, it would actually be a, a pretty good motto for life in the church community. What would it look like if we made each other look as best as we possibly could while still making the other person recognizable? I mean, Peter wants our community to see ourselves in reality, but he wants us to see others through the eyes of grace. If we're honest, though, we'd admit that we often get that order backwards, We are so prone to see others' faults and failures with 20-20 vision, but when it comes to our own, we don't see very well at all. Because of this, we're more prone to criticism and judgment than humility and love. And nothing is going to make us more merciful or gracious with the faults of others than seeing our own better. Than knowing our own faults and failures better than we know others'. When we begin to see our own failures and shortcomings, it's only then that we can be gracious and patient with others. And we can learn these new habits of life in the relatively safe environment of the church. It's why we rub shoulders with each other. It's why we're in relationship with each other. It's in this community that we can learn to be contributors of blessing. That we can bring God to one another and not just consume, not just take, we can give. Instead of approaching this community with an attitude of what I can get, what does this community do for me? Man, how radical would it be if we approach this community with an attitude of what can I give? If we approach this community with an attitude of how can I serve these people? How can I bless? How can I make God's love manifest through me in this place? we're called to be a blessing to our church family. It's how Peter sums up this section on relationship. But in this passage, Peter also turns and he touches on how we can be a blessing to those outside the church. How can we be a blessing to those who don't follow Jesus yet? And as Peter turns to our relationship to the wider world, he touches once again on the difficulty of being subject or living under somebody for love's sake. He talks about what it'll cost to be a blessing in this world in verses 9 through 17. It's going to cost something. And Peter turns and he speaks of something that he learned straight from Jesus while he followed him closely for three years. Remember, the person who wrote this letter followed Jesus throughout his ministry. He says, don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling in verse 9. And this is the way of the cross that Peter experienced firsthand from Christ himself. Peter had learned that when we experience evil and reviling for what we believe, we're called to do what he calls unexpected. We're called to do what is contrary to our natural instincts. We're called to bless. Bless. In other words, how do Christians get even? When they're cursed, they blessed. When they're harmed for doing good, they continue to bless. What would give someone the freedom to act in such a counterintuitive way like that? Well, the question is what Peter touches on in verse 13 when he asks, now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Well, it's a question that makes you stop and want to respond. Lots of people, Peter. Peter. You ever heard of the Roman emperor? Maybe if you took a look at history, you'd understand that there's lots of people out there that can harm us for doing good. But Peter is not naive. He has his eyes cut towards something more substantial than just the present time. He's focused on what is ultimate, not temporal. Peter knows that we'll ultimately be blessed by God. That's our ultimate destiny And with that hope secure, you know what we're free to do now? Is to move out and bless no matter the cost. Paul highlights this idea in Romans 8 when he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? In Psalm 56, David asks, what can mortal man do to me? In the gospels, we're told that God has the hairs on our head numbered. Nothing can happen to us outside of his care. And this is the kind of attitude that Peter's inviting us into. In verse 14, even when we suffer for what we believe, we've got no no reason to fear or be troubled. Instead, we continue looking for ways to bless, continue giving people a taste of God's goodness through us. This kind of life is going to attract lots of attention. It's the kind of life that Jesus lived and people still can't get over it. I mean, 2,000 years later, people are still talking about it. Even those who don't follow Jesus can't get over this way of life that Peter is painting for us in this passage. Because it's compelling. It's beautiful. And when we live this way, it affords lots of opportunities for God's people to make a defense for the hope that's in them. One good thing that emerges from our submissive life is that we've got plenty of opportunities to speak about Christ because nobody lives a submissive life like Christians are called to live. In a culture that is filled with suspicion and hostility, this kind of life demands people's attention and it gains their respect, even if they don't agree with your beliefs, In this way of life, this submissive way of life where you bless those who are evil to you, who are mean to you, who say bad things about you was the evangelism program of the first century church. They did not have evangelism explosion. They did not go to a course in order to learn how to evangelize their neighbor. This was it. It's this way of life that garnered attention in a hearing from their people and their neighbors. And it's still the way that God gets his word out in this world, through his people's beautiful lives. As followers of Jesus, we're never called to withdraw from an evil culture. We're never called to attack those who would revile us. We're called to be Christ-like and to move towards people in the way that God has moved towards us with grace and and patience and love. The church is called to make God's presence visible in the world today. And we can do that as we move out into our different spheres of influence with intentionality. Seeking to serve and to love those who God has placed in our lives, even when they don't appreciate it. Even when we don't get credit. Whether it be students in the classroom or patients in the hospital or children at home, Lord knows that they don't appreciate it. Colleagues at work, friends in your neighborhood. And if we live this kind of radically selfless life, people will begin to wonder and they'll begin to ask questions. And it gives us the opportunity to speak the word Peter uses for defense in verse 15 could also be translated with the word apology. It's where we get our, words, uh, our word apologetics from. And it usually is used to describe a defense in a formal context. And in the years after Peter writes this letter, Christians are going to be forced to make a formal defense in front of Roman tribunals. But his encouragement at this point in time is not limited to Christians in a court. It should happen throughout our life when people ask for a reason for why we bless. Evangelism can be a scary word for Christians. We hear it and we're not quite sure how to do it. We hear it and we're not sure if we're doing it right. But I think Peter simplifies it a bit for us this morning. He he makes it sound like something that happens naturally as we follow Jesus in our lives. I love how John Stott puts it, a pastor from England, when he says, evangelism is living contact with God and living contact with people. Or I like how one of my mentors put it when he said, our calling as Christians is to experience living contact with Jesus and rub off on others. Go and rub off on others. And as we give a reason for our hope, Peter touches on how we're called to make that defense. He invites us to do so with gentleness and respect, he says. He says, having a good conscience, which is an interesting phrase for him to use. What Peter is doing here is he's reminding us that our manner of life, and this is not something new for most of you, if any of you, that our manner of life has to match our words if we want to win a hearing. Humility in life is as important as boldness in word. Bold words won't have any effect if they're not supported by a consistent life. It's why I love Young Life's um, philosophy of ministry. You have to earn the right to be heard. Nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care is how they say it. And it's what Peter's getting at in this passage. Bold words won't have any effect if they're not supported by a life of love. Hypocrisy is so easily detected, and rightfully so. We can ruin hundreds of good words so quickly with careless and loveless actions. But when our words and our life work in tandem with one another, then you've got something beautiful. Then you've got something you can work with that is compelling. And even if you're slandered, it won't stick, Peter says, because it can't. In our passage this morning, Peter is calling us to move into our primary calling as followers of Jesus. To be those who bring blessing both to those inside the church and those outside the church. Those that don't yet believe in Jesus. And this calling started all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. And it's been God's mission through all of history to bring blessing to the world. And it's what Peter had seen firsthand in the life of Jesus. It's what Jesus did for him. It's what Jesus did for us. He suffered so that we might receive blessing from God. His life and his words came and they reached us and they showed us what God's love means. And now you and I get the chance, the opportunity, the invitation to move out and share that love with those inside and outside the church. It's an exciting calling. And you and I have been blessed, and now we get to move out and be a blessing. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it reveals who you are, for the way that it reveals how deeply you love us. We pray this morning that as we drink deeply of your blessing upon us, that it would change us from the inside out, and that we might be those who move out to bless those that we're sitting next to this morning and those that we're sitting next to throughout the week. We pray that you would receive glory through it all. It's in Jesus' name we pray.